Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 15 through 24. I'll say that again since it's different than what's in your bulletin. Luke 14, 15 through 24. If you're following along in a pew Bible, it is on page 927. Hear the word of the Lord. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he told him, A man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, Come, because everything is now ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, I just got married, and therefore I'm unable to come. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. Then in anger, the master of the house told his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, maimed, blind, and lame. Master, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, and there's still room. Then the master told the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and make them come in, so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those people who are invited will enjoy my banquet. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. So good morning again. Uh, by now you know that I'm not Godwin, and we're not going to be looking at uh, Revelation 21 and 22, which is a shame because that's an amazing passage, and the bulletin looks so nice too. It has that like whole picture. It's all themed for it, but we have another great passage in Luke 14 here. Uh, and our passage this morning takes place during an awkward, uncomfortable dinner party. Uh, and I'm sure you've had a similar experience before where you are either out to dinner with a group of people or perhaps you're over at somebody's house. Uh, when someone in the group says something just to make it, then it makes everything really awkward, right? Or it makes it really uncomfortable for people that are around. Uh, you know, it might be the person who, uh, whenever you go out to eat, they always have something to complain about to the waiter. Uh, it might be they need to send their food back for this reason. Uh, when I was a teenager, I had a family member who would complain about the temperature in the restaurant, which was deeply embarrassing to a 14-year-old kid. Uh, or it could be the, the person, the family member at the holidays who always has to bring up the heated political topic uh, or someone who says that inappropriate joke, you know, whatever it might be, uh, you know what it's like to just want a nice, relaxing dinner uh, and somebody has to say something that kind of ruins the whole thing and just makes it uncomfortable. And if you don't know that experience, chances are that you are that person that makes it uncomfortable for everybody else. Just throwing that out there. But here is uh, the catcher this morning, though, is that Jesus was that person. <laughs> Jesus was that person who often made everything really uncomfortable to those around him. And that's what he does in our passage today. And if I was at this dinner, my temptation would have been to ask, you know, Jesus, do, you, do we really have to talk about that? Do you really have to bring that up now? You know, can't we just talk about sports or the weather uh, or, or at the very least, can't we find some common ground that we agree on? Can't we kind of build a bridge with them uh, and, and try to go about it that way? 
But Jesus never shied away from controversy, especially not when the good of other people depended upon it. It wasn't a flaw in his character, like it usually is with ours, uh, that led him to do these things, but it was love. Love is willing to enter those awkward and uncomfortable situations for the good of the other person. Love is willing to even make someone upset in the moment for their long-term good. And so to get some context around our, our, our verses this morning that we'll look at, uh, verse 1 of chapter 14 tells us that it was a leading ruler of the Pharisees who invites Jesus to dinner. Uh, he invites his Pharisee buddies over, uh, some other experts of the law, probably with the intention of, of trying to correct Jesus a little bit. Uh, so they've already had some open uh, disagreements. The Pharisees have been criticizing Jesus for some of the things he's been saying. Jesus has been openly criticizing them as well. Uh, and unfortunately, this dinner isn't going to make things any smoother between them. Or maybe fortunately, it just depends how you look at it. It's like it just jumps from one confrontational conversation topic to another. And we don't have time to go through all of it, but just to give you a quick recap to kind of see what's happened before. Uh, the first uncomfortable topic is in verses 1 through 6, uh, and they're continuing their disagreement about the Sabbath. Uh, so the Pharisees, and, and what, what you can or cannot do on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees say, uh, you cannot work, and therefore no healing should even be done. And Jesus says, basically that's just dumb. Uh, obviously, it's okay to heal people on the Sabbath. Uh, and, and to prove his point, Jesus heals somebody right there at the dinner. And you would think that should solve every other dispute, right? You would think that that kind of Power on display settles everything else, but it doesn't. Uncomfortable topic number two is all about pride and status, uh, where Jesus criticized them for the fact that they chose the seats of honor at this feast. So they all kind of came in and picked the seats and, and to kind of show their own importance and where they stood against other people. Uh, so really, they're just trying to show forth how, how great they are compared to other people. And the irony of it all is that God himself is at that dinner table. <laughs> Jesus, the Son of God, is there in their midst, and they're just consumed with their own ego, consumed with themselves, and Jesus calls them out. The third uncomfortable topic is in verses 12 through 14, and it's related to the previous one, but Jesus uh, criticizes the host as he looks around at, at basically at the guest list, those who were invited. He criticizes the host for who he invited. He sees all uh, these important people, the, you know, the, intele the intellectual, the wealthy, the successful, and they have various degrees of importance, but they're all the important people in, in this society. And Jesus is basically asked, you know, where are the poor? Where are the, the sick, the forgotten, the unimpressive? These are the people that Jesus gravitated towards, and they're not at this banquet. They weren't invited to talk to him. And finally, that brings us to the fourth uncomfortable topic, which is our passage this morning. And this would have been the most confrontational and offensive of everything that happened that night. So let's, let's dive into the text. So after those initial conversations points and what's already happened, one of the guests at the dinner uh, interjects in verse 15, blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. You know, it's like he's almost trying, just trying to calm things down a little bit, to, to break up the awkwardness of the night a little bit. And, you know, you know, here's something we can all agree on. Blessed is, is that person. 
Your translation might say, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And, and he's essentially saying, you know, yeah, we have our differences, uh, but at least we'll all be in that kingdom and we'll enjoy that feast when it arrives. It was likely a common saying of the day, and he just kind of assumed that Jesus would agree with him. And Jesus could have agreed with him for the most part. As we look at this parable, Jesus doesn't flat out disagree with him. However, he knows there's a false assumption behind this man's comment that has to be addressed. The assumption was that everyone around that table that night was definitely a part of God's kingdom and would be at that feast. More more specifically, it, it was to assume that they were in the kingdom of God, they were his people, regardless of how they responded to Jesus himself. And there couldn't be a more dangerous assumption than that. But for these men around this table, they likely never doubted that they were a part of God's kingdom. They, they never doubted it. You know, they were Jews by birth and the most devoted of that. They, they were the most impressive. They had lived moral, religious lives. They kept the law better than anyone else. So surely they were in. Surely they were part of God's kingdom. How could they not be? They knew the promises of God that he made to Israel, that the Messiah would come and he would set up his kingdom and rule and reign forever, set things right in the world. Those were their promises. Surely they were in. But as we'll see in Jesus' response, there isn't a more dangerous assumption in all the world than to assume that you are in. And because of this assumption, they miss the kingdom altogether. But still, even more tragic, they miss the king who is right across the table from them. They missed Jesus. And so he wants to make it clear as possible at this dinner, and really to all, that just because you were born an Israelite, or perhaps today born into a Christian family, born into a a country that has a, a Christian heritage and some cultural remains of Christianity as the norm, just because we go to church on Sundays or try to be good people, as good as some of those things are, they mean nothing in and of themselves. In and of itself, it means nothing. In some strange way, as it did the Pharisees, it can actually keep you from seeing your need for Jesus if it makes you self-righteous and consumed with yourself and just thinking you're good apart from Christ. So we must always be careful of wrong assumptions and faulty beliefs that could keep us from the Savior. But let's turn to the parable itself, uh, which gives us Jesus' main response to this man. Once again, verse 16 Then he told him, a man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, come, because everything is now ready. So as was his common practice, Jesus is going to respond and teach through a story where everyone there could relate to the details. Uh, He uses a banquet or a feast, which thankfully we also can relate to the details. We know what these things are uh, and mostly haven't changed in 2,000 years. But one thing that is important to point out is that in Jesus' time, uh, the standard practice for, for an event like this, and you can, if you read between the lines, you can kind of see, was that two invitations would go out for a feast like this. The first one would go, have gone out in advance, maybe weeks, months in advance, letting them know about this feast that's coming and inviting them and getting their response that they could come. And then a second would go out 
on the day of the feast saying, everything's ready. Come, come on, we're ready to celebrate. Come and enjoy this feast. You who've already accepted, you're a part of this. Come, it's time. And you would think to those living in a, a small town or a rural area, this should be the highlight of the month. They should be excited. They should be ready to go and celebrate. But, verse 18, but without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I just got married and therefore I'm not able to come. So what's happening here? They all apparently accepted the initial invitation. They said they would come. They should be excited to go and now they're making excuses. And, and what does this actually have to do with our dinner party that we're looking at where this is being told? Where the man said, blessed is the one, everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus is telling them, this is exactly what you are doing. You are on this table. This is what you are doing. You have the promises of God through the centuries, all the way back to Abraham. God has called you and invited you to this feast. And now I am here telling you it's ready. I am the king who is here inviting you to come and rejoice and celebrate and come. And you refuse to come. You're making excuses. Jesus has been preaching uh, since the beginning of his ministry, the good news of the kingdom. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And yet they refused to repent and they refused to believe. And so they are missing out on the kingdom that's right before their eyes and the king. Now I want you to notice a few things about uh, these excuses. First, none of them truly required that they miss this banquet, right? None of these things required that they couldn't be there. Uh, and so none of them were truly legitimate reasons to miss out on this. You, you know, you have to see that property and test that oxen right now. You know, shouldn't you have done that before you bought it? You know, that, that usually makes sense. You look at something before you buy it. You test it before you buy it. You know, that, that's great you were married recently. Praise God. It, that's exciting but you can't come for one night to this feast? It, really? You know, you know, none of these excuses are legitimate reasons to miss out on this banquet. Second thing to notice is that all of these things are regarding earthly matters that in and of themselves are, are morally neutral. There's, there's nothing wrong in and of themselves with, with these things. You know, property, assets, relationships, marriage, these are good things uh, when, when they're received with thankful hearts in, in the right way. But at the same time, it's often these things that can be a great hindrance to our souls. J.C. Ryle, uh, who was a pastor in the 19th century in England, commenting on this text, he wrote this. He said, it is not so much the open breach of God's law as an excessive attention to lawful and innocent things which ruins many men's souls. Read that again. It is not so much the open breach of God's law as the excessive attention to lawful and innocent things which ruins many men's souls. So it's not just the terrible, heinous, obviously corrupt sins that ruin men's souls, but it's also things that are good. It's things that are fine and normal in and of themselves. So sure, we see the open breach 
of God's law, the defiant rebellion, uh, obviously in our society right now, in, in many ways. And, and that obviously ruins souls. And we obviously should be concerned about that and care about that. But this passage also gives us a, uh, a more subtle temptation or, or maybe a sneakier uh, thing that we need to be careful of. It can often be good things, lawful things, that keep us from God. So, so the first man, he wasn't stealing the property. It's not like he was doing something that terrible. He just bought the property. Uh, you know, the second guy, it's not like he was buying cocaine. He bought some oxen. It's like buying a tractor, you know? He's just trying to work and make a living. You know, the, the last guy, it's not like he was spending the night with a prostitute or committing adultery. He had a wife that he was excited to spend the night with. Or at least that's what they said. We've already doubted how genuine they are. But uh, nonetheless, it's not just these ugly, obvious sins that keep people from God, but it can be great blessings that can prove a hindrance and harmful if, if they cause us to neglect the Son of God, if they keep us from seeing our need for Jesus and responding to Him. But here's the most important thing of all to notice about these excuses. Uh, why do you make an excuse? When you make excuses, why do you make an excuse in the end? You ultimately make an excuse because you don't want to do something, right? You make an, ex an excuse because you don't want to go somewhere that you've been invited to, or you don't want to do something that you've been asked to do. You just don't want to be there. Uh, a while back, my, my wife and I were invited to a wedding uh, of some people that we didn't really know. Before I go any further, it was none of you, so don't worry. Uh, but we were invited to this wedding. We barely knew these people. Maybe talked to them once in our life. And as we were discussing it, we became obvious that neither of us wanted to go. Uh, so what did we do? We started thinking of all the, I'll say reasons, excuses, <laughs> of why we couldn't go. Oh, you know what? Uh, the kids weren't invited. And we might not be able to find a babysitter. So uh, you know, I think that's a good reason why we can't go. Or, you know, it's pretty far drive you know, an hour long, you know, I think that's a good reason not to be able to make it on a Friday night. Or, you know, we kind of went through these different reasons and excuses of why we couldn't be there. And that's not saying you have to say yes to everything you're ever asked to do and it's wrong. But in the end, you don't do something. You make excuses because you don't want to do them. You know, if we were super excited about that wedding or if it was close friends of ours, don't you think we could find a babysitter? <laughs> Or, or don't you think we'd put up with driving in a little bit of traffic or for a long distance? Uh, I think we'd make arrangements to deal with those kind of things if it was important to us. And, and it's the same thing with this parable. None of these things were necessary. None of these things truly required that they couldn't come to this feast. So in the end, it was for this very simple reason. They didn't want to. They didn't want to respond to the invitation. And Jesus is saying, that is how you men around this table, and by extension, mankind in general today, responds to and treats God. The Jews of Jesus' day were guilty of this, and sadly, countless are guilty of this in our day. People don't worship God or respond in faith to Jesus for, in the end, this very simple reason. They don't want to. I don't want to sometimes. God's grace must work in our hearts. But apart from the grace of God, men don't respond to God for the very simple reason they don't want to. And sure, there might be a variety of excuses, supposed arguments from science or philosophy or 
questions about the Bible's reliability, or perhaps a, a bad church experience growing up, or perhaps you prayed something about something that really mattered to you, uh, and God didn't come through. He didn't answer that prayer how you wanted him to, so he can't possibly be there. If he is, he can't possibly be good or loving or care about me, whatever it might be. And, and I don't want to minimize or trivialize genuine questions or, or genuine hurts and pains. Those things are real. But at the same time, Jesus is saying, in the end, if you don't respond to the invitation, if you don't receive Christ as your Savior, acknowledge Him as the rightful King that He is, in the end, it comes down to a very simple reason, and that is that you didn't want to. And any of those other excuses will not hold up on Judgment Day. Repentance in the Bible is, you know, essentially to stop making excuses and accept the invitation. It's to let go of the things, give up the things that would keep us from God and run to Him instead. Respond to this call instead. You can bring the questions. You can bring the doubts. You can bring the pain, but you must come. Bring whatever else with you, but come, and He will do the work. But the most frightening part of this parable is the response of the master of the house who threw the banquet. Verse 21, so the servant came and reported these things to his master, then in anger, or your translation might say, then he became angry. He wasn't indifferent to their refusal to come. He didn't say, ah, okay, I get it. You know, go do whatever else you want. Ah, it's no big deal. You don't really have to be here. No, he, he took it personally. You see, his anger And this passage reminds us that God does not take the rejection of his son lightly. The, the master of the house became angry, and he made that pronouncement of judgment in verse 24, for I tell you, not one of those people who were invited will enjoy my banquet. Remember the, the situation again, the context that he's saying this. This is following the statement, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is telling them, if you don't respond to the invitation, now that it's here, now that I'm here, you will never be a part of that. You have no place in that. Just because you're an Israelite doesn't mean anything. You're not guaranteed this. You must respond and believe in me. And he says the same things to us today. The only thing that will keep you out of the kingdom of heaven is your refusal to come is your refusal to trust in him and listen. Now, I also want you to see, amidst these uh, hard words and this kind of tense conversation that Jesus was having uh, with the Pharisees, I also want you to see the grace of God on display in this passage, though, the, the, his, his mercy on display. And we'll see it displayed in two primary ways that I'll point out that I'll suggest to you this morning. First, the provision of the feast. And second, we'll look at the nature of the invitation to this feast. So, so first, the provision of the feast. Let me ask you this. What did the master of the house tell the guest to bring? Nothing. What, what was required of them to gain access into this feast? Nothing. They didn't need to bring anything, just themselves. They were invited to come, and that's all they had to do. It, it, it wasn't a potluck. You know, they weren't contributing dishes. No, the, the feast was fully provided for. Provision was fully prepared by God. There's so much in that statement. Come, everything is now ready. 
God has done everything necessary for you and I to come to him. All the provision and preparations have been done. You can think of Jesus as he hung dying on the cross. It is finished. The price that had to be paid for us to be welcome in God's presence had been paid through the precious blood of Christ shed on that cross. That was the entry fee. That was the price that had to be paid. And as as great a cost, as infinite of a cost as that was, it wasn't and never will be paid by you. Jesus is the only one who could pay that price, and he has paid that price on the cross. So all that we now hear is come. Everything is now ready. This free invitation echoes back to the words of Isaiah 55, which says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Come to me that your soul may live. Free invitation. What is required? Come. He said it five times in that like three verses in Isaiah. Come, 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 come. What do you need to pay? Nothing. It's been provided for in Christ. Just come. That's the invitation. One of my favorite songs uh, that we sing here from time to time uh, is Come Ye Sinners. Anyone else love that song? I love that song. We got a couple. Uh, Andrew, it's my favorite. So if we could sing it more, it'd be great. Um, But I remember the first time I heard this song years ago at a different church, I remember my initial thought was, uh, man, that's, that's a great song for non-Christians to hear. They really hear just kind of this free invitation to come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ of what, how Christ has provided the way and done everything necessary and kind of all these different scripture references and, 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 and passages in mind. And it's just an amazing song. It starts out, come ye, uh, come ye sinners, come ye thirsty, come ye needy. The, depending on the version, there's a few other comes. But it's an invitation to come to God through Christ. But the more I sang those words and thought about the meaning, I realized this is just as much a song for Christians as it is non-Christians. We, can, we continue to come to God the same way we came to Him at first. It's not like we come needy and then after we come, we keep coming strong. Or we came thirsty and now we keep coming just fully satisfied already. No, you know, sometimes we have this completely wrong idea of how we should approach God as as Christians, about what it means to be strong in faith. You know, to be a mature Christian does not mean that you're not a sinner anymore. Which you know that, but do you really know that? Do you you really realize that? Or, Or that you never feel weak or needy or weary or just beat down. Rather, but to be a mature Christian is to know your Savior so well and be so convinced of his love that you are able to bring those things to him day by day. So day by day, as you find yourself back in that place of guilt, feeling guilty over something you've done or said, or back in that place of just emptiness and longing and just struggling, you don't put on just a fake smile and go about your day, but no, you you know where to take that. You go to your Savior again and again and again, and you cry out, Jesus, I am so weary. Would you give me that strength I need again? I know you've always come through with me in the past. I'm waiting on you and your strength to come. Or Jesus, my heart is so hard. 
Would you soften it? Would you soften and cleanse my heart? Jesus, look at these sins again. Oh, Jesus, I need your blood again, and I will trust in you again and again and again. And so we bring all these things to Jesus. You know, this sense of inadequacy or failure does not keep you from him, but rather it drives you to him because you know how great his mercy and his grace and his love that we sang about in that wonderful hymn just a little bit ago, how great his love is. And in the words of that, that same hymn, Come Ye Sinners, I love the chorus of that song uh, where it says, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. I will arise. I will go to Jesus again and again and again. So you recognize, yeah, you you fall short in every way. Yeah, you are weary and tired and struggling or whatever it might be, but you know where to take that. You know that Christ's work on your behalf is perfect. You know that he is a great savior. He's a savior of sinners. And so you come. You hear his invitation and you come day by day. So never lose sight of the grace and mercy of God. That's your only hope. That's your only peace. That's your only joy as we continue to battle against the flesh, as we do the things we don't want to do or say the things we don't want to say and we don't say the things that we want to say or do the things we want to do. You know, all we have, we need to continually come back to Jesus, relying on his grace, relying on his provision, his strength. Finally, regarding the invitation of this feast, who was invited? The short answer, of course, is everyone is invited. Well, let's look at what it says. Verse 21, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, maimed, blind, and lame. So these were it would have been the nobodies of that society. The people that obviously weren't at that dinner. They weren't invited to this party. Uh, but in this, you know, these are the people. Go invite them. Go, go tell these people who are nobodies in the society, those who are neglected and forgotten and rejected and unwanted, especially among the social elite. Tell them. And as you read through the Gospels, you can't help but see that these are the people that have a special place in the heart of Christ. You just see Christ's compassion overflowing to the needy, to the poor, to the hurting, to the sick. And so they have a special invitation, you might say. The invitation that gets broader in verse 23, go out into the highways and hedges and make them, or your translation might say, compel them to come in. And by this, Jesus is making plain to those men around the table that this feast is not just for Israelites. This is for all people. This is for the Gentiles or non-Jews as well. Everybody is welcome at this feast. This Savior, this King is the Savior and King for all people. Not just Israel, but all people. And once again, the only requirement is that they come. They too must come. And finally, uh, he gives the reason for all of this. Going out and compelling people to come in. In verse 23, here's the reason he gives. That my house may be filled. I love that statement. That my house may be filled. God wants a full house. The, the more the merrier with God. So pray for God's house to be filled. As you look around at our society that's so broken and filled with so much strife and misery and pain, 
as you see that, pray for God's house to be filled. Pray for more and more people to be brought into this kingdom and experience the joy of this feast, the satisfaction that's alone found in the goodness of His house, of knowing the Lord as you see friends and co-workers and neighbors and family members who are missing out, invite or actually compel them to come and know Jesus. Come to the one who alone satisfies our souls. I'll close with the words of one more great hymn, which says, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me come to thee, Lamb of God, I come, I come. Let's pray.